The two kingdoms framework is that God rules creation in two different ways. He rules the earthly or common kingdom by common grace and natural revelation. Should we be pessimistic or optimistic about the possibility of cultural change? Is the current culture redeemable and full of common grace, or fundamentally fallen and lacking in common grace? Our answers to these questions can help us see where we fit into the spectrum of cultural engagement, and also teach us what we can learn from those who have equally orthodox but pragmatically different perspectives on the Christian's role and culture. And now, here's Ike. All right, folks, we um, uh, don't have a ton of time, so we're going to dive in here. This is what we looked at last week, was the uh, the Reinhold Niebuhr model of uh, Christ and culture and Christ and it's uh, our, the Christian's engagement with culture. And basically he's using Christ as a sort of metonymy. It's sort of a word that doesn't just mean Christ as a personal figure, but also uh, sort of a, the, 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 just redemption in general is kind of what it's talking about. Now this is, I asked you guys to look at it. I asked you to talk with your family, not so much about this, but more just about you know, what is our family culture? If we could define our family culture, what would it be? If my workplace has a culture, what would it be? Many of us, men and women both, work in cultures. There's gonna be a lot easier notes to take, Evelyn, by the way, before this. So don't, don't feel like you gotta jot this down, okay? Um, this is, and Mary Claire, if you give your email address to Mary Claire, she'll, we actually sent this out to everybody, so we'll make sure you get it, all right? Um, the, uh, the, um, uh, most all of us work in environments that now in, in, in workplaces and businesses are consciously talk about culture. And we talked about that a lot at the beginning, but that's not a bad clue for us beginning to think about um, what, what cultures do we uh, participate in? What cultures do we embody? What cultures do we uh, contribute to? And what cultures influence us as well? So what Niebuhr is trying to do is to get us as Christians, the project of this is to get us as Christians to start to think about where we align with this kind of idea. Now, as I told you guys last week, we're not going to spend a lot of time here today. As I told you all last week, uh, one of our, our, our current great thinker, theologian, pastor theologians is Pastor Tim Keller up in New York. Um, and what, 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 Dr. Keller did is he basically took this and he sort of uh, um, made it more current, removed the more academic context to it, and, and made it more um, uh, applicable, directly applicable to your, your sort of average regular church member who hasn't read a bunch of sociology and anthropology and giant works of, of theology and, and history. But it's just, is, is the person that says, I love God, I love the Bible, I love my church, I love engaging with people around me, um, and, and that's about the, the bandwidth I've got right now. So what Keller did is he made this, uh, let's, let's reduce this down and see if we can make it more understandable. And so he took those Christ, uh, the Christ and culture five views, and he, he sort of jettisoned one of them. Which one did he jettison, if you remember from last week? Yeah, he jettisoned the separation one, and he said, you know, I, I, while I understand why some people would choose to move in this direction of complete separation from a non-Christian culture, and we would be looking at sort of an Amish background or a Mennonite background or something along those lines, 
I just struggle to see that as a, as a call in scripture, as a complete and total way of life. There may be times when we're called as Christians to step away from culture or to step away from the, uh, the, the influences of the world and all those kinds of things. But in, in an isolationist sense as a permanent solution, doesn't see, I mean, if that's the case, then, you know, why pick a farm field in Pennsylvania? Why not, go, you know, go buy an island and, and go there where, you know, you can just really control the environment even, even more than you can control it otherwise? Because at any point, it becomes a, it, yeah, Connie's like, that sounds like a great idea. No, <laughs> just kidding. I love islands off the coast of Iceland. No, I'm just kidding. That's, well, that's, that's, that's not... That's not too far from false, I imagine. So, uh, we're, but we're not advocating Christian Christian island selling. That's not a new real estate venture or anything on those lines. So Keller kind of jettisons that one out, and he takes the other ones and he turns them into these uh, four categories, which he calls the transformationalist, the re- relevant Christian, or or the relevantist, if you want to make up a, a an adjective version of that word or whatever, the counterculturalist, if you will and then two kingdoms theology, all right? All four of these, when we read their definitions, you will be like, oh, I know those, I know those. You will totally recognize these once we get them into this category. And then once we run through those four categories pretty quickly, then we're going to answer your questions that you were supposed to answer two questions for class today, okay? Because there'll be a chart that'll tell you, which one of these four do I fall under? I don't know which one I am. I've never thought about it too much. So it'll tell you which one you kind of align with. And you might go, I don't want to align with that one. But I answered these questions, yes, and that means that I actually do kind of align with it. It's a process of self-discovery in in your personal beliefs about culture, society, God's involvement and engagement, and and theology. All these things are coming together. When, when, When Christians and the world kind of come together, your theology of the Bible and your theology of culture, they're going to they're gonna come together and you're going to get forced to ask hard questions. Should I go here? Should I do this? Should I watch this? Should my family participate in this? I mean, and this will, it will bring it down. It's not just, should I watch this movie? It's, should my kids be in this club soccer team? It's, is, it's should my children go to this school? Should, should me and my family be doing this on Saturday nights, should, you know, whatever. You're, it, it forces you to start asking hard questions. Or as a creator, start asking questions like, should I be participating in this project? I need the paycheck. But is it worth the paycheck? You got, I mean, the hard questions start to arise. So this is what Keller says, for the transformationalist, and by the way, he says, transformationalists, and, and I'm, pardon the, pardon the right and left, um, language. I'm not trying to politicize anything per se. It's just the easiest shorthand for us to understand. Both the right side of Christianity, which would be considered more conservative and more orthodox. I mean, theologically, I'm not talking politically, okay? The more conservative side of Christianity and the left side, the more progressive side of Christianity. Both on the right and left side of Christianity, there's transformationalists on both sides of the spectrum on all of these categories, okay? The All transformationalists with their very different theologies and practices seek to transform culture by living out the Christian worldview in their various vocations, okay? They want to transform culture by living out 
their Christian worldview and their various vocations. They think that if I live a consistent Christian worldview in my workplace, <clears throat> in my workplace, in my, in my home, in my family, a vocation, a vocare, to be called to. That means all the things that I'm called to do, then that culture will start changing. Like it will have to change. It'll either react negatively to me or it will react positive to, positively to me. It'll, it'll force change, if you will. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Positively, they view secular work, in other words, not work that's primarily focused on gospel ministry. Anything that's not preaching or church work would be labeled, quote unquote, secular work, if you will, okay? They view secular work as an important kingdom activity. This is important for the kingdom of God. And they celebrate Christians' involvements in politics, economics, the arts, media, and the academy. And they critique the notion that the secular public square is at all neutral, okay? Now, that is the definition of a transformationalist. Now, we can think of a number, probably, of our conservative right side theologically friends that would be potentially seen as transformationalists. But before I get you to start naming names, just kind of think of them in your head, we get you the four definitions first, because you might find that, that, that there's, some might be more one of something else than you might think to begin with. But in general, the big theologian slash <clears throat> Christian social philosopher, if you want a name to put to this, the big theologian slash social philosopher that significantly influenced this idea of the transformationalist was a guy in Holland in the late 1800s, early 1900s named Abraham Kuyper, right? You guys have heard that name for it? Kuyper, K-U-Y-P-E-R. We would call this Kuyperian Neo-Calvinism. You don't have to write that down. It's okay if you don't remember that part, <laughs> all right? But Kuyper was the guy who really started to think that the Christian engagement with culture and the spheres, he, he titled, he, he's got an idea called spheres, and he talked about the spheres of cultures and society. And then he took those spheres, he said, now, here's where the Christian sort of bridges those and engages each one, all right? So that's really what was influential behind the transformationalist. But you're going to have everything. You're going to have everything from a Doug Wilson way over here on this side of the coin to a Russell Moore who's over here more on this side of the coin. More, I mean, it's, you've got this, this is the, probably the generally most popular view that's out there today, all right? Doesn't make it right, but just so you know, it's generally the most popular view, all right? Then you have the relevantist. The relativist is gonna be in this synthesis model, all right? So the relativist, relevantist, person who believes in the, the, that, that Christ is relevant to culture, remember that was the, one of the phrases we used earlier, is that the defining feature of this group <clears throat> is the idea that God's spirit is in the world to do good. That's a key phrase right there. The spirit of God is in the world to do good. So Christians should join what he is doing. We need to make sure that we learn how to adapt to new cultural realities. In other words, the culture sets the pace 
for what is the ministry focus, what the focuses of ministry should be. And then the church needs to adapt to that in such a way that they are able to make the gospel sort of new for this culture or an environment, all right? And they need to, and, and learn from the culture. By the way, if God's spirit is in the culture, we need to be learning from the culture as well, okay? <clears throat> this will lead people to feel optimistic about secular culture, whether we're talking about marketing, whether churches get excited about their new marketing strategies, whether it's capitalism or socialism, whatever the dominating sort of uh, political theory of the day is, psychology, the use of psychology in the Christian world, fighting environmentalism, fighting poverty, not fighting environmentalism, uh, that's, that came out on the wrong side of that coin. <laughs> fighting those daggum environmentalists, no. Um, fighting for the environment, environmentalism, all right? Uh, fighting poverty or whatever those things are, and they place a strong emphasis on the phrase that you hear quite often these days, social justice and the common good. And, all, and, and by the way, the common good, that's the sort of, you know, we want the boat rocking less kind of idea. We want, we don't, don't rock the boat sort of mentality. But the common good as evidenced by, now I'm going to use a word here that I'm not going to explain too deeply, but a utilitarian sort of model, which would mean that to do the least amount of harm to the greatest possible number of people. Uh, that's what the common good means. That's called utilitarianism. And the idea is, is that the governing philosophy is how little harm can you do to the greatest number of people, that must be what is morally right, right? Morally, like that means ethic. It, it's, it's an ethical strategy, if you will. And often, they critique the church more than they critique the culture, okay? Now on this side, again, you've got people on the right and left. On the, on the right side, you've got everybody from guys like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren would be counted as relevantist in this model. They do just as much speaking at business platform environments as they do at church platform environments, okay? Um, but then on the left side, you're gonna have a Rob Bell or Brian McLaren or the, the red letter movement, which is the sort of only pay attention to the red letter words in the Bible. That's what Jesus said. The rest is really non-applicable, okay? Those are, you know, because Jesus was a great teacher, right? He was a good teacher, and he evidenced that, you, I got a gong, am I getting gonged off the stage? Is that what that was? That was great. So that's the relevantist, okay? Do you, are, are this catching? Are you recognizing? Are you thinking in your mind? I can think of some people like that. I can think of some stuff along these lines. Okay, then you've got the counterculturalists. Okay, this one's longer, so I'm gonna read it quick. They see the church not as one of many groups within culture. Let me turn it like this so I can read it from here. A little bit easier. Um, Actually, that doesn't help at all. So I'm not gonna read it like that. They see, yeah, well, I thought I could make it bigger on my phone to do it, but it didn't work. They see the church, not technology, they see the church not as one of many groups within the culture that can learn, but not, they see the church not as one of many groups within the culture that can learn from it and adapt to it, but as a, in other words, it's just one of many cultures, but as a radically different organism altogether, whose purpose is to challenge the powers of the day. 
The church is a, I mean, this is a warrior type mentality, all right? That they can challenge the powers of the day simply by being the church. In other words, we, if we do church, people will be able to tell a difference, okay? Then the church got into trouble when it got into cahoots with the state, right? You're getting a lot of overlapping ideas from 1970 to 2018, aren't you, in these definitions? You're kind of going, oh, that would be so-and-so. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. That's actually, this would be, this would be used as a principal critique of things like the moral majority, right? That was po the political platform of Dobson and Falwell and those guys, all right? Um, and it serves best as an agent of the kingdom when it's operating separate from the state, completely, particularly on the issues of violence. Whoa, you just added something else in. Does that mean that the church is, in this view, the church is also generally pacifistic, okay? I know, I'm throwing all your categories for a loop, aren't I? Positively, this church approaches, uh, this approach preserves the important distinctiveness of the church. In other words, the church should be distinct. It is called apart. It is the bride of Christ. It is separate. Uh, and it critiques of these other three models for putting too much hope into politics. And it encourages members to identify with the marginalized. Because it also says, like, look, these, these are other people that have been sort of beat down by the culture. This one sees the political state at its foundation as what we would call a hegemony, a controlling presence that is not made by God, okay? It's, it's given by God, like the king in Israel, but it was not, it was the choice because they wouldn't listen to God. So, you see the, the balance there? All right. Um, Negatively, though, it can be excessively pessimistic about worldly culture. It really doesn't believe that there's much of anything good in worldly culture. That's why it stays apart. That's the element of that sort of separationist mentality that comes through in this one. And it is uh, uh, pessimistic about worldly culture and common grace. It is harshly critical of things like banking and government, oftentimes, which can themselves be used for the common good, but can often be used as a controlling enterprise. And it generally gets doctrinally fluffy when it comes to the parts about scripture that do talk about violence and the, the, the um, militaristic arm of the church and, and those kinds of areas. Um, especially starts to jettison a lot of the Old Testament and starts to really focus on the New Testament church. Uh, and the propitiation of the cross, and, and in other words, the violence of the cross that Jesus actually was put to death by God the Father for our sins. Um, it really does not like to get into those hard theological questions. And it's often very vague on the importance of preaching and becomes really important, uh, important, in, dealing with the, um, important in dealing with the programs of the church, if you will. All right, that's the counterculturalist. This is, this is the old Anabaptist model, and Niebuhr, who we just studied, would probably fall sort of in some of this category as well. At least his offspring, the main guy that's, that's, that's out there that's brilliant and doing work on this area, is a guy named Stanley Hurwas, who is what, this, this is developed in what we call neoliberalism, if you will. <laughs> and that's a phrase we'll come back to later on. And finally, you've got a two kingdoms framework. This is the last one. 
and then we'll look at your questions and we'll come back to this as we finish up in the next few weeks. Obviously, next week we'll be at the, at the Engage conference. So this is the two kingdoms. The two kingdoms framework is that God rules creation in two different ways. He rules the earthly or common kingdom by common grace and natural revelation. Natural revelation means the truth of God's world that is revealed outside of Scripture that we can gain through philosophy and science and our thinking process and discussion and engagement and dialogue. That's natural revelation. But he rules the heavenly or redemptive kingdom, those who are believers, only through saving grace and special revelation. So you've got an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom. You've got those two things. All humans are called to do their work well for the common good, but this is not in itself redemptive. In other words, what you do in your job place can't redeem anyone. It might be a door that helps people come over to visit the sort of heavenly kingdom, if you will. Like, do you want to come to church with me? Do you want to come see, sit in on a Bible study at my home? But, and in most places, there's a lot that you can't take in. We had a story last night about First Protective where uh, one of our elders here, Lance Black, uh, they've been bought out by a Jap uh, protective life. They were bought out by a big Japanese firm. All these Japanese guys keep coming over. And they actually were trying to help them get connected with the Japanese Briarwood Church. And the corporation was like, no, 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 no. Like, you can't do that. Well, you're, it, this was, part of this was a Beth and Abigail story together. And Andy was talking to Beth, and he was like, we have to be really careful about what we do. Well, lo and behold, Lance, ended up, Lance Black ended up in a conversation with one of the new ex Japanese executives who just came over and somehow or another got him connected to Ko Hamamatsu, and he's now, their family's now going to the Japanese Briarwood Church, and, and, they were, and they were like, you know, Delance was like, how do I get the next one? You know, I mean, he's like, but I can't talk about it. So Ko said he and his wife Jackie will give like uh, dinner and to help people just become acclimated to the American culture. I'm just a Japanese man living in an American world, you know, sort of thing. Come on and take part with us. And, but they've started to see some of these executives start going to the Japanese church. But that doesn't, Lance didn't redeem First Protective, or Protective Life. I always get the two confused. Ed can always clarify for me. Lance didn't redeem Protective Life. Lance just carried out the common good and brought someone into an, 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 uh, the kingdom of believers. Now, they may not be a believer, but they're, they're over and they're engaged and involved in it now. Does that make, see, see the difference between those two? So that's the two kingdoms one. And this is, uh, this, this one does, we, this is sort of the, 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 the most people who uh, um, adhere to this one cite back to Luther and Calvin as being the basic founders of this. And you're looking at Michael Horton out in, Calif out in California, many of you know. Um, our good friend, Kevin DeYoung, wrote a book recently called What is the Mission of the Church, which is a great book. And he really skirts the line between Two Kingdoms and Transformationalist with those two with, with that book. I encourage you to read it. It's a great book. What's the name of the book again? It's called What's the What is the Mission of the Church? What is the Mission of the Church? And that's a great one too. And so um, there is obviously one of the real positives here is an incredibly high view of vocation, of your work being important, because it's an avenue, but it doesn't view it as redemptive towards the culture. So the, di the, difference, but the, 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 the difference would be you've got really two camps on this. The two kingdoms and the transformationalist 
have more in common than one would think. The relevantist and the counterculturalist are basically the two sides of the coin of what does it mean to really get into culture, if you will, okay? So those two camps to this. So I gave you two questions to ask. We're gonna come back to this next week, okay? I gave you two questions to ask, and we'll finish up with this. Should we be pessimistic or optimistic about the possibility of cultural change? Are you pessimistic or are you optimistic? And is the current culture redeemable and full of common grace, or is it fundamentally fallen and lacking in common grace? In other words, is it a, I mean, you can basically say, is it a predominantly negative? Is it moving in a negative direction as our culture, American culture, or a moving in a generally positive direction? So real quick, we got like, I know I take it at like 37. We're actually gonna get out earlier because since we did prayer requests already, so don't worry. We're not gonna be here till 45 after. Uh, so real quick, give me some of these answers. These are the four categories. You've had the five from Niebuhr, you've had the four from this. By the way, we're gonna work this all the way down till each one of these has literally just two words attached to it to help you remember it. And it'll be like, oh, that makes sense. So don't worry, this is the, this is the tough stuff here, right? You're, you're engaged in a hard uh, concept. So who wants to, who wants to, who feels, should we be pessimistic or optimistic about the possibility of cultural change? Kind of a clarifying question. Yes. The, the, the question can handle both, um, either a short-term change or a long-term change. You can be optimistic about a short-term change. You could look at that as a quick fix. You could look at that as a, like a hard shift in direction and pessimistic about it having a long-term impact. Or you could be pessimistic about anything happening in the short-term. But hey, I think that if we keep working hard or if we keep doing X, Y, or Z, we might see longer-term change. So I, it would probably, the, the heart of the question probably falls more in the category of the second question that I, the, the second answer that I said, rather than the first answer, but it can handle the first answer too. But I would say more along the lines of, if we keep doing what we're supposed to do, or even learning more and growing more and doing, and I mean, I, I know these are phrases that are very humanistic, so, it, you know, but through us, God can do this, that, or the other. And, and I mean, because it does come down to, well, is it me that changes? I mean, this should drive you to a question of saying, is it me that changes culture or what? Is it God that changes culture? Well, we all know God can change culture, but what does he change culture through normally? I hate this answering questions with questions. <laughs> That's a teacher's job, Jovi. Oh, that's, you gotta, yeah, you gotta figure that out. <laughs> because that's... You can't go by what you see on the news. No, 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 that's good. I, I mean, ev from an evidentiary standpoint, I would probably say the closer to home you get, the more practical your answer will be. In other words, like, I mean, are you thinking, well, I mean, some people might hear this question and go, well, to change culture, we need to remove Trump from office, or we need more... We need, we need more Trump or we need whatever. But some people will go to, like if you ask this question to Gary Palmer, I mean, that'd be a great question to ask Gary. Sure. I mean, obviously he's gonna answer, he's but he's living in a whole different culture. He's gonna answer yes broadly, but he might answer no locally. And I don't mean locally Birmingham, I mean like he might say, look, the culture of Washington DC, not a chance. There is, 
that swamp is a concrete swamp. You're not gonna drain it, you know what I mean? It might be Gary's answer there. But in the midst of being unable to change a Washington culture, I can still affect, you know, if I follow my biblical principles for what God's called me to do as an elected representative and a public servant, I could still potentially change long-term culture. See what I mean? Yeah, Matt. I, I guess I'm optimistic, but in I see that it has to be in areas where there's almost a, a market-driven influence, like where there's a, there, there's a, just an obvious need in, in the general culture, like you know, whether it's you know, drug abuse or, or, or you know, problems with children or things that everybody would recognize that there's a need and the Christians, Christians would go in and try to meet those needs. You know, like think about the Christians that went in and ministered to people during the plague or, mm -hmm. or you know. Oh, Florence Nightingale, American Red Cross, hospitals. Baptist, sure. Methodist names on them. Or Catholic, one, yeah. Yeah, at one time those, those went out to meet a need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you just actually made another good point, and, and then I'll let Ed talk, and then we'll probably, I'm gonna let Ed kind of wrap us a little bit here today, um, because we're at 1040. The, um, the other question that you're pushing to her is, what, what is the current state of the culture? Do you think it's moving in a good direction or a bad direction? And there might be people that are thinking that there are certain elements of the culture that are moving in a good direction right now and elements that are bad. And you might be sitting in a room with people that think literally the exact opposite in the same church as you. I mean, we have a ton of people at this church that are on different sides of that, that, that fall down on different sides of that, uh, of, that, um, of, of, that, of that idea, of that model, that equation. Like that might be saying, you know, no, all this stuff that's bringing this stuff is good. And you might be going, no, it's killing the culture, but this stuff is bad. And they may, no, that's the good stuff. You know what I mean? So don't forget that too, as well. Ed, what were you gonna say? Well, yeah, nothing incredibly insightful. I was just gonna say- Dang gummit. What do I pay you for? But I think that the, you know, you just look back at history and the pendulum has swung where culture has gotten really bad, but then things have happened where cultural, like the tides had changed. Mm -hmm. I think in addition to some of the things that Max said, I think about Wilberforce and the, you know, slavery. And Absolutely. And, and, I mean, you know, that, that was a seismic cultural shift. Mm -hmm. And some of the women's rights stuff was mm -hmm. a seismic cultural shift in a, in a God-honoring direction, whether it was intended as that or not. And that's another great point. Um, so it boils down to the fact that for someone like me, I'm a retired, older, Christian mm -hmm. that really is, and I'm going to make a confession here, not really into current events and what's going on on the larger scale. Sure. I mean, I live a little small life. That's great. Okay. And coming to something like this that opens up all this information to me is somewhat overwhelming. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My answer to this is regardless of what my opinion is as to what the answers are to this question. What does this challenge me as an individual, as a Christian to do where I am at my life at this point in time because God looks at me and holds me accountable for my heart mm -hmm. and the rest of it is in his hands. Well, Evelyn, you just made, that's actually a great point for us to finish on. I really appreciate you uh, opening up and saying that. That is awesome. And, I, and, and I'll just finish it up by saying this. 
This can be either our national culture, but don't forget what we've started saying every class period. Cultures are micro, our micro culture, my small culture. That, but guess, that means this Sunday school classroom has a culture. Is this Sunday school classroom, should I be pessimistic or optimistic about the possibility of change? Should, is, this, is this redeemable and full of common grace? Or is it fundamentally fallen and lacking in common grace? Now, I think we know the basic answers of that, but this is a microculture. And we don't ever affect cultural movement unless we start asking those questions. And it might be our neighborhood, it might be our family, it might be our Sunday school classroom, our church, our friend group at school, who knows what it is, all right? But it's, it's by focusing oftentimes on the microcultures that we start to affect broader cultural, nested and interwoven cultural change. So let's remember, it's easy to jump to the big picture on this stuff, but as Evelyn's a great reminder, we gotta keep it in our, in our front porch as well.